and welcome to Knowing Nature, the podcast about exploring and engaging with the natural world. I'm your host, Victor. In this podcast, I share experiences, practices, and perspectives on helping people to reconnect with the natural world. Today, I'm talking about two pieces of environmental education research and what they mean for us as educators. First, the results of two surveys commissioned by Teach the Future, a youth-led campaign here in the UK whose main aim is to get sustainability embedded in the national curriculum so that students are informed about the environmental problems facing humanity and are equipped with the skills to tackle these challenges. But curriculum is just one part of education. The content of the curriculum needs to be taught and what is effective can depend a lot on what you are trying to achieve. So, in the second half of this episode, I'll be looking at research which provides direction on what makes an education program effective for changing student behavior. The study provides evidence that embedding sustainability in a curriculum is not enough, and it describes the qualities of hope-enhancing programs which are linked with greater levels of pro-environmental behavior in students. First up, Teach the Future's State of Climate Education in the UK report. This report was released on March 16th, 2021, and part of their release was actually a webinar event which was recorded and it's available on YouTube. So if you want to find out more about the campaign and this report, check out the link in the show notes. So on to the report. The findings in the report were based on two surveys. First, there was a training and climate education poll which used the app TeacherTap to get a representative sample of teachers in the UK. They had over 7,500 teachers from across the UK respond to the question, do you feel you've received adequate training as a teacher during qualification or since to educate students on climate change, its implications for the environment and societies around the world, and how these implications can be addressed? 70% of teachers responded that they had not received training on any aspect of climate change. However, this question asks specifically about training, so it doesn't mean that these teachers don't know anything about climate change, and it also does not mean that teachers did not think that climate change was an important issue. So in order to dig a bit deeper into the state of climate education, Teach the Future commissioned a second survey by market research think tank Opinium. This more detailed survey asked teachers a range of questions on climate change, their school, and their teaching. The sample in this survey consisted of 503 teachers from across the UK, with a fairly even split between primary and secondary school teachers. They also had a good geographic distribution from around the UK, roughly reflecting the population distribution, and the sample included a range of schools which roughly lined up with the Ofsted ratings distribution. So Ofsted is the UK schools regulator, and they measure school performance using inspections and also test results. So the teachers were asked about their school's Ofsted rating, and the results roughly lined up with the distribution of ratings given to schools in England. So all in all, some pretty good reasons to think that these results are broadly representative of education within the UK. So the top line results for me from this survey were that uh, when asked about how climate change was addressed in their school, 53% of teachers responded that climate change is often mentioned, taught in the curriculum, and has also been the topic of other classes or assemblies. However, 40% of respondents reported that climate change was rarely or never mentioned. So very mixed results there. 
This mixed picture of how climate change is addressed in schools is in quite sharp contrast to the 90% of responding teachers who felt that climate change was of concern and that more should be done about it. In fact, 20% of the responding teachers felt that climate change was the most important issue at the moment. 90% of responding teachers also felt that climate education should be compulsory. The remaining 10% of respondents were asked for their reasons, and if we dig into these results, we find that the main barrier reported was that climate change was felt to be too political. Some other responses included feeling that school wasn't the right place for this subject, or that students learned enough about climate change outside of school and so it wasn't necessary for it to be addressed in school. The issue of climate change being felt to be too political is quite an interesting one. If we think back to the film club episode about Arrival, we talked a bit about needing to separate physical reality from political ideology. Now, in the case of climate education, we can separate this into teaching about climate systems, the impact of greenhouse gases, those kinds of things, because these are physical realities, so they're not political. It's just what's happening. What is political is deciding what actions to take in order to mitigate the impact of the changes that we've caused. And it's political because it's not exactly clear what actions should be taken because there are many tools at our disposal and using them will have different consequences for different people. And weighing up the costs and benefits of these different actions, determining which costs are acceptable is a political question. So teachers should definitely be able to teach about the physical realities. And there are teaching strategies for supporting students in developing the skills to tackle difficult moral questions. So when we look at climate change through this lens, we can see that there are certainly parts of climate change, the topic which um, teachers should not feel are political, these physical realities, you know, the climate systems and processes, these are physical realities, teachers shouldn't be worried about teaching those. So that's gonna require a, a shift in perspective. When asked about other barriers to teaching about climate change, the most frequent responses included teachers already feeling quite overstretched teaching the existing curriculum, lack of confidence in the content, and again, that the topic was felt to be too political. So those are the top line results of these surveys for me. Now let's take a look at these survey results and the asks of the Teach the Future campaign in the context of other environmental education research. The results of the survey follow the patterns of other research. For example, Natural England, which is a non-departmental public body, which looks after access to natural spaces. They do things like designating protected areas. They deal with environmental uh, aspects of planning permission, those kinds of things. Uh, in 2012, Natural England published a report on learning in natural environments. And in that report, they identified very similar barriers to making use of outdoor spaces. Despite teachers and administrators recognizing the benefits of using outdoor spaces, they found that use of outdoor spaces for learning was often limited by the teacher's confidence in using them and a perceived lack of support from school administrations. These new surveys from Teach the Future highlight the fact that not much has been done by the UK government to really address the issues which have been repeatedly identified Teachers still feel underprepared for teaching about environmental issues, and teachers still do not feel like they have the support they need to make the environment a bigger part of their practice. 
So including climate change in the curriculum is certainly one way of addressing this need and this demand, and it would certainly help teachers and administrators feel supported in their efforts to address environmental issues. So this is a really great starting point for the Teach the Future campaign. However, including more content in the curriculum can create its own problems. The survey results highlight that teachers already feel overstretched to cover all the content that's currently in the curriculum, and simply adding climate change and other environmental issues into the curriculum would certainly not help this situation. What is probably needed is a hard look at how the education system works in the UK, and there needs to be a push to give teachers the space and the tools to teach kids how to teach themselves effectively. So how to seek out information, how to consider it critically, and make connections. But this is a topic for another episode or other podcasts. Check out the full show notes for links to a few other podcasts which take much deeper looks at ways of reimagining teaching. Other than the amount of content in the curriculum, there are other reasons why the inclusion of climate change is more complicated than it may at first seem. For instance, while there is some evidence that programs which are longer in duration or occurring at more regular intervals uh, are more effective at fostering pro-environmental behavior, there is also evidence that programs which are too intense can be counterproductive. People can suffer from what's been called in the academic literature empathy fatigue. If people are presented with too many big issues or problems or stressors, it can burn out their ability to really care or empathize. So making climate change a thread through most or all of the curriculum could actually backfire by overloading students and dampen the strong support for action which we've seen emerge over the last few years. Giving people space and time to process information about stressful topics is really important. It lets them work through their feelings about it and develop coping mechanisms or ways to turn those emotions into motivation to take action. Time away from a topic also allows people to go back to it with a fresh perspective, perhaps allowing them to see the problem in a different way and thus find different approaches to tackling it. In the case of big environmental issues like climate change, too much information can also lead to apathy. It can make the issue feel too big for a student to make any difference, and so they kind of give up on trying. Rather than make climate change mandatory content throughout the curriculum, it might be more effective to build it into the non-statutory guidance which is throughout the national curriculum, and it's there to help teachers interpret the statutory requirements. So having it be in this portion of the curriculum would allow teachers to have a bit more flexibility in how they teach about environmental issues, maybe allowing them to play a bit more to their strengths or tailor the content to suit the needs of their class. For example, in one term, a teacher might approach climate change through the lens of history, maybe looking at how climate affected medieval Europe or how environmental mismanagement affected the fates of ancient civilizations. This would give students a bit of breathing room on environmental issues in other curriculum areas. And this might mean that when they do talk about environmental issues, they have much more impact because they've not been bombarded with it all day, every day. Another consideration is the way in which subject matter is taught. Information in passive learning experiences like lectures or reading are often very quickly forgotten 
while active experiences like playing games tend to be retained much longer. But they often require a lot more planning, more class time, and often more confidence in the subject matter. Including more content in the curriculum could push teachers towards the passive learning experiences, towards lecturing or, you know, read chapter four before next class type teaching. Because these are methods which many educators, myself included, often fall back on when we feel time pressure to cover a lot of content. So all this means that if climate and environmental education make their way into the curriculum, it needs to be accompanied by a lot more research into effective environmental education practices, and teachers will need training and support so that they feel like they're equipped to provide those effective learning experiences. And all of this is precisely what the Teach the Future campaign is asking for. So UK listeners, if you haven't already, I'd urge you to have a look at the campaign and get involved because they're doing a lot of really great work. Time for a short break. And then in part two of the episode, results of a study which provides some direction on characteristics of an effective environmental education program. Before the break, I discussed some of the headline figures from results of surveys commissioned by Teach the Future. Their biggest ask is that schools teach about climate change and include sustainability and environmental content in all subject areas. However, as discussed, including environmental issues in curriculum guidance will not necessarily lead to greater action on climate change. In this section of the show, I want to share some insights from a paper published in the Journal of Environmental Education, which provides some really relevant insights here. The paper is titled, Two for One, Achieving Both Pro-Environmental Behavior and Subjective Well-Being by Implementing Environmental Hope-Enhancing Programs in Schools. This report was published in 2020. You can check out the show notes for a link to this research. So this paper compared the impact of school type and participation in hope-enhancing programs on students' behavior and their subjective well-being. So, school type. Since 2003, Israel has had a green school accreditation program. Schools can choose to take a whole school approach to teaching about environmental issues, where sustainability is integrated throughout the curriculum. So here you can start to see why this paper is so useful when thinking about the asks of the Teach the Future campaign. Israel's green schools are effectively doing what the Teach the Future campaign are asking for. The green schools program has been running since 2004, and it's been really popular with well over 1,000 schools participating. And so this demonstrates that just as the UK survey results showed, there's demand for teachers for this type of approach. So this study was comparing students in schools which have this green school certification and what I'm going to call sort of traditional schools, just schools that don't have the certification. The researchers surveyed 1,450 students from green schools 
and 453 students from non-green or traditional schools. They measured the students' environmental hope, pro-environmental behavior, positivity, and school satisfaction. The researchers also asked a series of questions about students' participation in various school activities, and then the researchers used these questions to determine how much participation there was in what they termed hope-enhancing programs. The researchers found that school type actually wasn't particularly strongly associated with pro-environmental behavior. So in other words, going to a green school where sustainability is supposed to be embedded throughout the curriculum did not seem to have much impact on whether students actually took action on environmental issues. As the researchers noted, this result is pretty consistent with previous research on the effectiveness of green schools or environmental education programs. Being taught about an issue doesn't necessarily change your likelihood of taking action on the issue. What they found did have an impact was taking part in what they called hope-enhancing activities or programs. Students who participated in this type of program were more likely to self-report that they regularly took action to do things like reduce waste or participate in environmental activism, so these are pro-environmental behaviors. These students were also more likely to report feeling positive and were more likely to have high school satisfaction. And this result was true regardless of whether the school had green accreditation or not. Hope-enhancing programs, they sound quite promising. Uh, What do these authors actually mean by an environmental hope-enhancing program? They describe this as a program which supports pathway thinking, agency thinking, and social trust. Social trust is essentially trusting that others are also doing their part. Hope-enhancing programs tended to involve a lot of collaboration with partners both inside and outside the school to achieve some goal. The programs also taught about actions which were already being taken by others and other organizations, and also they involved building a sense of community. It makes sense to me that developing social trust would have an impact on pro-environmental behavior because it breaks down the barrier of feeling like there's no point in doing anything because your individual action would have no impact. With a strong sense of social trust, we trust that others in our community are also taking action and will have been shown or taught that organizations are taking action in the ways that they can. So makes sense that social trust is going to have an impact on pro-environmental behavior. The next characteristic of a hope-enhancing program was pathway thinking. Pathway thinking is about being able to see a path or plan a route through a problem. It's about setting goals, prioritizing, and tracking progress. It also involves problem solving, so being able to identify different ways of achieving a goal and being able to change course to these alternate solutions if a problem or a barrier arises. Now, my reading of their description of pathway thinking is closely linked to what they call agency thinking. So this is the feeling of knowing that you know what you want to do and you feel like you can achieve that goal. Agency thinking supports self-motivation or intrinsic motivation to engage in pro-environmental behaviors. Another interesting detail they pointed out was that these hope-enhancing programs also tended to support students developing a particular type of goal, uh, what they termed approach goals, which they contrast with avoidance goals. 
An approach goal is one in which you work towards achieving something, while an avoidance goal focuses on preventing something from happening. So for example, an approach goal might be to find ways of protecting or supporting biodiversity. An avoidance goal might focus on how many species have become endangered and preventing them from going extinct. The two are very similar, they cover very similar topics, but the researchers found that more hopeful students tended to use approach goals. And so supporting students in developing approach goals may help the students sort of stay positive in their outlook. And so supporting students in developing approach goals may help them stay more positive in their outlook and more likely to take action. What are the implications? Well, first, I thought for educators and campaigners, this study shows that embedding environmental education across the curriculum is possible. We have examples of a whole school system that's done it. It may not be easy, particularly at the outset, but it is possible to take this kind of approach while still being able to teach other subjects. However, if this approach is to be effective, and by effective I mean supports action which would lower human impact on the environment, the teaching strategies need to be really carefully considered. For any teachers listening, if you do want to teach more about environmental issues, I'd encourage you to consider the hope-enhancing characteristics which are described in this paper or to take a look at project-based approaches. Both of these allow for that separation of teaching about physical reality, uh, which is not about politics, from advocating for a particular course of action, which is political. Hope-enhancing programs and project-based approaches tend to support students in developing their ability to find their own solutions to problems and build up a sense of agency and it encourages students to really think about the pros and cons of, of taking particular actions. So in both of these approaches, the teacher can teach about the physical systems and the processes, and it's up to the students to determine for themselves what kind of solutions to the problem they want to pursue. So the student ends up developing their own problem-solving skills, and they build up that sense of agency that they have the ability to take action. For campaigners, it's really important to push also for teachers to have that training and support in how to build these topics into subjects outside of science or geography. For most of us educators, we fall back on our own experiences in school, and if we weren't lucky enough to have been taught in a cross-curricular or action-oriented way, you know, if we didn't take part ourselves in these hope-enhancing programs, it can be a really steep learning curve to incorporate these into our practice. So having this be part of teacher training is really important. This brings me to environmental educators who work outside of schools, like myself. What are the implications of this research for us? Well, first, I think we need to really carefully evaluate how we build environmental issues and climate change into our sessions. This is something which also applies to classroom teachers, but particularly for those of us who work in other settings, we are often really time-constrained in what we do. We might have only 45 minutes to an hour to meet kids, teach a lesson with as many hands-on experiences as we can cram in, and I know that I've often found myself running over time and then throwing in a comment at the end to tick that issues box. So if the whole session, or at least a significant chunk of it, isn't about an environmental issue, it may be better to leave out the discussion altogether. Take, for example, 
doing a lesson on habitats where kids may be there looking for bugs and then drawing their habitats and describing the characteristics of the habitat. Then we have to put the bugs back. Then we might end the session by getting the class to think about what might happen to these bugs if climate change makes the area hotter and drier. Oh, but then time's up. It's off you go. I need to set up for the next class. This kind of approach might increase a student's awareness of an issue if they remember that that portion of the session happened at all, because it sometimes can be as short as in that example just now. But imagine being presented with a big problem, and one which can be quite emotional to think about, like all the bugs that you've just met drying up and dying, uh, and then being ushered off so that your class can make their time slot in the lunch area. This could leave some students feeling a bit overwhelmed and maybe feeling quite helpless. And I imagine for some, it could really trivialize the issue. You know, I'm going to ask you to think about this, but lunch is more important than actually talking about it. So it might be more effective to focus on a concept or an experience in the in-person visit and then provide teachers with support and resources to build on that experience back in class. So to, to tackle an issue back in class. This could really allow us to focus on helping students during that visit really develop a connection or appreciation for nature. This positive experience could then provide motivation for students when they are working on that project-based unit where they maybe come up with a plan for tackling an environmental issue which is linked with the site that they visited and developed this connection with. Now if your session is going to focus on tackling an issue, Consider framing the problem in terms of developing those approach goals rather than avoidance goals. So for example, instead of how can we stop deforestation, which focuses a lot on what is being lost, you might reframe this as how can we help forests to grow or thrive? The latter includes very similar strategies for reducing illegal logging or clear-cutting, so deforestation, but the focus is a bit more positive, which could help prevent kids from being overwhelmed with eco-anxiety without losing sight of the, the core problem. Another way organizations could tackle this is by teaching students about what's being done on the site to combat climate change or some other environmental issue. So you could talk about the work that your organization is doing to restore peat bogs, which capture and sequester CO2. If it's a historic site, you could talk about laying hedges to create barriers, but those are also nesting sites and sources of food. A city farm might talk about wildflower strips on their margins as ways of supporting pollinators and predatory wasps, which help productivity while also reducing the need for pesticides. Sessions like this would support that development of social trust, which was described in this paper. Learning about actions taken by a local organization or a local green space could be a really powerful way to counteract those feelings of helplessness. And the fact that these actions are being taken by a local organization can also really bring home the message that global issues also affect us here at home, and that there are things which can be done right here to help. Another simple way many organizations could make probably quite a big impact is by encouraging teachers to visit outdoor sites in their own time. If embedding nature and environmental issues into the curriculum is going to be effective, it's going to require buy-in from teachers. And as many of us know, nothing sinks a school green program faster than the teacher who set it up leaving the school. For these programs to be really effective and durable, there needs to be a team of passionate teachers who can keep that program going even if one or two teachers move or retire. 
So in order to have this kind of support on a larger scale, we need to make sure that teachers have positive connections with nature and are confident in using outdoor spaces and have solid background knowledge of the topic. In other words, environmental organizations need to be providing hope-enhancing experiences for teachers as well as students. And it doesn't even need to be anything new. Simply encouraging teachers to visit when you are running hands-on activities, maybe over the holidays, or allowing teachers to come on professional development days where they observe and maybe help with a session. These are already opportunities for teachers to take ideas and first-hand experiences back to their classrooms. That way, hopefully, when sustainability and climate change education becomes part of the curriculum, those teachers will be ready. So I hope this episode has been a hope-enhancing experience for you, and you've gotten some ideas for pathways you could take towards tackling environmental issues in your teaching. If you'd like to build up your sense of social trust and find out what others are doing, have a listen to Knowing Nature, episode 38, where you can find out about ocean schools and their beautiful, innovative digital resources, which focus on marine conservation. You might also listen to episode 42, which is an interview with Katya from Ecoactive and their action-oriented and for-school programs. You can also check out our full show notes at knowingnaturepodcast.wordpress.com, where you'll find links to the research discussed in this episode, as well as links to related research and resources. That's all for this episode. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.